Hi, it's Alan Alexandrov once again, and it's a pleasure uh, to uh, be introducing another podcast interview, uh, in this case, uh, with Stephen Walt, uh, and uh, I am looking forward uh, to this particular interview. This is episode 23 uh, with him in the series Shaking the Global Order, American Foreign Policy and the Age of Trump. Uh, I must say, I had the excuse of Stephen's new book to get in touch with him. Uh, His new book is entitled uh, The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. So um, uh, my interview with Stephen is really an opportunity to start with his uh, new book, but then to range more fully over uh, American foreign policy. We were also able to examine with Stephen uh, his uh, view of Trump foreign policy from this perspective that he brings of anti-liberal hegemony uh, perspective. Stephen holds the um, Robert and Renee Belfer Professorship in International Affairs uh, at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Uh, he previously was dean there. It's a real pleasure to bring um, Stephen into the studio and to have this wide-ranging discussion uh, of American foreign policy. So welcome, Stephen. It's a pleasure to have you with us for this uh, podcast episode, episode 23, on uh, Shaking the Global Order, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. Nice to be with you. Ah, great. Yes. Okay, so Stephen, uh, let me uh, start with this uh, question. Uh, You've recently published a new volume on American Foreign Policy. It's called The Hell of Good Intentions, uh, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the decline of U.S. primacy. In one, in the early area of the book, you suggest that uh, Trump's criticism of U.S. foreign policy, particularly during the election uh, season, uh, that is 2016, when he was running for president, uh, was, um, you know, um, in fact, justified. You said your answer was the answer, unfortunately, is yes, because most of the problems afflicting U.S. foreign policy are the result of conscious choices rather than the unpredictable acts of fate. So why are you suggesting this, uh, Stephen? Well, I think one way to think about this is just compare the world of the early 1990s, uh, sort of when the unipolar moment uh, was in its heyday, Mm -hmm. and the world of 2018. And, you know, this is what I think Trump was picking up on, too. You know, back in the early 90s, it was a period of great optimism. Uh, Relations with the major powers are all reasonably harmonious. Democracy spreading around the world. Markets are expanding. Iraq is being disarmed. Iran has no enrichment capacity. The Oslo peace process means a peace in the Middle East is at hand. You know, NATO begins expanding. The uh, Eurozone is expanding. The Euro gets created. We think we're at the end of history. There's really an extraordinary period of optimism there, and everything seems to be going very smoothly. Um, And then uh, we have a few problems, but they're all, you know, pesky little dictators who hadn't gotten the memo (laughs) yet. Um, 
Now you look at the situation today, right? Relations uh, with Russia worse than uh, at any time since the end of the Cold War. Relations with China uh, quite bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and those two countries now cooperating uh, against us. Democracy in retreat uh, in uh, a number of different places. According to Freedom House, uh, it's the 12th consecutive year of a decline in global freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, India, Pakistan, North Korea all test nuclear weapons. The Oslo process is a complete bust. You know, our efforts to get a two-state solution all fail. Iran becomes a latent nuclear power, etc. Oh, you compare it to 1993-94 with 2018. Um, oh, and I didn't even mention September 11th, the Iraq War, the Afghanistan uh, debacle. Um, it's pretty easy for Donald Trump in 2016 to walk out and say, and this I'm quoting him, American foreign policy is a complete and total disaster and have a lot of Americans nod their heads and say, yeah, pretty much right. Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, looking... Which is, which is which is not to say that he knows how to fix it, but that's a separate question. Yeah, and we'll explore that a little bit more, uh, the alternative. But um, uh, some of our colleagues, Tom Wright, uh, Jim Goldgeier, Stuart Patrick, and, and others, have focused on the implications of Trump's foreign policy, uh, that which it is, the America First statements and the Trump focus on reversing the action of predecessors, particularly uh, uh, President Obama. So he, uh, he, Trump, he withdraws from the TPP, even though it had been negotiated by the United States as a lead. He uh, withdraws, although technically still part of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. You'd mentioned the Iran uh, nuclear deal. He withdraws from that and reimposes, as he has done recently, um, on um, uh, sanctions on Iran. Um, a, an analyst, uh, uh, Zachary uh, Carabell of uh, River Twice Research, says that, in his view, Trump likes to break things first. He likes the idea of tearing down old bridges without building new ones, or at least he likes to talk as if that's what he's doing. Um, I, I take it your disappointment, because you mentioned it at the end about Trump and his policy, is that he really has nothing to replace the current system. Is that correct? Is that what the problem is? Well, I think it's actually worse than that. That's certainly true. He does not have a well-organized uh, sort of worldview of uh, a blueprint of how he wants American foreign policy to run, at least not one he's ever been able to lay out and articulate. And I think many of his failings in foreign policy uh, stem from that. Mm -hmm. But in a sense, it's it's the situation's really the worst of both worlds because many key elements of the old order are still intact, um, but we're, they're now being managed by the least competent president I think we've had in you know a century or, or more. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been an enormous change in style, right? He uh, acts in ways that are unprecedented, uh, you know, for a president. Uh, but in fact, the substance of his foreign policy isn't that uh, different uh, than his predecessors. Um, so, you know, just to take the, the list you, you cited there, yes, he withdrew from the TPP, but remember, Hillary Clinton uh, opposed it during the campaign. So did Bernie Sanders, for that matter. And it's by no means obvious it would ever have been ratified by mm -hmm. the U.S. Senate. That would have been an uphill fight. Um, yes, he got out of the Iran nuclear deal, but that was always a 51-49 uh, thing you know the Obama administration had to 
work 24-7 to get that through. Right. So it's not like he did a 180. And to, to adopt an anti-Iranian position is hardly revolutionary in, <laughs> in American foreign policy. Uh, we've got the same set of alliance commitments around the world. He hasn't gotten out of any of those. He sent more troops to Afghanistan the same way Barack Obama did his first year as president. We've got essentially the same Middle East policy uh, with maybe some of the hypocrisy uh, pulled away. Mm-hmm. Same set of allies. We're just sort of doubling down uh, with all of them. Sanctions on Russia have increased under Trump. Uh, defense budgets have gone up. And just as uh, you know, Obama wanted to pivot to Asia and confront China, uh, Trump has done the same thing as well. So, oh, one final thing. You know, he's made a big thing about trade deals. And we may actually have something uh, serious going on there uh, vis-a-vis China in particular. But so far, right, the two big trade deals he's renegotiated, the South Korea Free Trade Agreement and NAFTA, what ends up coming out after a lot of bluster and a lot of threats is a new agreement that is essentially a carbon copy of the old agreement with a few commas and semicolons moved around. Mm -hmm. Uh, not something that's substantially different, may not even be an improvement. So there's no question that he has challenged many elements of the old order, but he hasn't actually disrupted it as much as people think. Um, would, would you suggest that that's true, even in the case, because you didn't, the one, uh, you know, multilateral agreement in particular that you didn't mention was uh, the Paris Climate Change Agreement and his determination to withdraw from that is doesn't that set a very different course of action than either his predecessor or those who were vying for the job uh as well uh, well, certainly it's very different than Obama's position. Obama, I think, really understood that climate change is a major uh, long-term problem requiring uh, serious attention and, and for whatever set of reasons, doesn't uh, doesn't seem to believe that. Uh, in the Paris Agreement was a step forward. It was not a, in my view, a sort of transformative series of agreements, but it was, I think, an important piece of progress. Mm-hmm. And for the United States to withdraw from that not only has, I think, real-world consequences in terms of emissions and things like that, uh, but it was a signal that, this, that uh, under Trump we were going to be going a different way. Okay. Uh, I don't want to suggest that there's no differences at all. You could make similar Similar arguments that, you know, unlike almost all other American presidents, Trump pays almost no attention, not zero, but almost no attention to issues like human rights. Right. Uh, democracy it just doesn't seem to be part of his vocabulary, mm-hmm. uh, except when he wants to beat up a country like Iran or uh, perhaps a few others. Uh, but but even there, you know, the substance of U.S. policy has not changed that much. We've always been a little bit hypocritical and Trump has just removed the hypocrisy. OK, so so the rhetoric is different, but you're you're suggesting that a lot of the actual substance of policy remains pretty much on track. Yeah, so far. I mean, one one way of uh, putting it is that that Trump has lots of instincts, things he might want to do. But thus far, um, you know, what is sometimes called the foreign policy blob has managed to rein him in to a large extent. And either because he doesn't have enough allies in his own administration, he doesn't have enough sustained attention to really do a disciplined campaign uh, or, or whatever. He has not been able to screw things up as badly. I don't think this is a good situation 
situation, by the way, because we still have uh, a global order that's very heavily dependent on the United States sort of being involved and running everything. Mm -hmm. And you have a president who's erratic, who's impulsive, and also who has a real uh, penchant for getting into pointless quarrels with some of our best friends, uh, you know, like the prime minister of uh, the lovely country of Canada. (laughs) Why, thank you. Um, Now, you raise, and so I wanted to explore a little bit with you, uh, you're very critical in your book and also in previous writings of the foreign policy community, what is affectionately referred to as the blob. And and uh, so I wanted to explore a little bit of why. Why are you so critical of the foreign policy community or the foreign policy elite? Um, right. Well, it's it's basically because that there's been a very strong consensus within the foreign policy elite. And by that, I mean, basically, people whose careers are focused around international affairs uh, in one way or another, sort of 24 seven. So I'm talking about, obviously, people who work in the relevant parts of the U.S. government, state uh, intelligence, defense, etc. Um, the think tanks that are involved in foreign policy, of which the uh, various lobbying groups on human rights or military spending or trade or whatever that uh, have an active foreign policy agenda. And I also throw people in the media who cover foreign affairs and, of course, academics like me who work on it all the time. I would put myself within that uh, elite as well. And within that uh, group, since the end of the Cold War, there has been a powerful bipartisan consensus, not universal, but very powerful consensus in favor of what I call liberal hegemony, the idea that the United States should use its power to spread liberal ideals as far as we possibly can. That's basically the business we've been in ever since the early 1990s. And I'm critical of the elite for two reasons. One is they've pushed this idea even when it keeps failing. Mm -hmm. And also they've managed to essentially uh, avoid any real accountability, never really questioning the virtue of their ideas or the uh, appropriateness of this strategy, but also uh, not being personally uh, accountable. So to a first approximation, it doesn't matter how many times you screw up in the handling of U.S. foreign policy. You can always get promoted. You can always get another job. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's only the people who go sort of outside the consensus that find themselves in trouble, find themselves marginalized, find themselves uh, not facing as bright a set of career prospects. So in that sense, I'm, um, I am critical of an elite that has refused to learn from its past mistakes or hold itself collectively accountable. I see. Uh, so, so notwithstanding you're within, the, uh, in, in, within that envelope, you do not see yourself as, as following this logic of a liberal hegemony. Right. I, I'm, I would I have to consider myself part of this foreign policy elite. I mean, I, I teach at the Kennedy School at Harvard. I'm a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. You know, I've done various consulting work for government, although I haven't served in government themselves. So I'm not a, a marginal figure in that sense. Uh, you know, I have a column at Foreign Policy magazine. Right. But I think I, I think it's pretty clear from what I write that I am an outlier within that world and that I have not embraced what is, uh, for the most part, the consensus view 
of what U.S. foreign policy and what America's position in the world really ought to be. Okay. Now, I take it, and it's a, it's a nomenclature that's used fairly frequently, that you see yourself as having a more realist, with a capital R, I suppose, realist foreign policy. And maybe you can describe that, you know, the main elements of that, and in contrast to the blob. Um, right. Well, I think that, that uh, as a realist, I think, you know, states remain the most important actors and that what drives world politics as much as anything else is the, is the balance of power uh, between states and countries, that the absence of a central authority, the absence of any uh, world government to speak of, means that every state has to ultimately look out for itself, has to be reliant on its own resources and its own strategies to secure its uh, prosperity and secure its independence. That doesn't mean states don't cooperate. They cooperate all the time uh, for mutual benefit. Uh, but that is always a little bit uh, fragile. And at the end of the day, you can't depend upon others uh, to come to your aid because they might not. Uh, you know, and, and as you well know, this basically has a number of implications for sort of how international politics is going to work, that it's basically a pretty competitive uh, enterprise. And it's also one, um, I think, for most realists, where there's a real premium on prudence. So one of the objections that realists would have to the apostles of liberal hegemony is that they, they ignore the effects of their own policies, the real effects they're going to have. That When you uh, start crusading around the world and telling other countries that you have the answer, you know how they should organize their societies, you know uh, the best way to run things, some of those countries are likely to resent it. Um, so, you know, a country like Russia, a country like China is going to welcome the United States declaring that uh, democracy is really the only system of government that's appropriate for the world. And furthermore, we're going to use the considerable power at our disposal to try and promote that everywhere. Uh, we're going to move NATO eastward, uh, claiming, of course, that this isn't directed against Russia and possibly believing ourselves that it's not directed against Russia. But that's not, of course, the way that Russia is likely to see it. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, realists, I think, uh, at least in the modern incarnation, tend to be also advocates of prudence. That you know, The world is a dangerous place. And you need to be careful how you invest your power, and you don't want to run off on idealistic crusades, particularly in parts of the world that you don't understand very well, and where your actions, even if well-intentioned, are likely to have a lot of unintended and unfortunate consequences. Well, and and you, you raise this question about collective action. Are you suggesting that the realist in you says, well, you know, I'm not so sure about, uh, well, as an example, Article 5 of NATO, which is a collective security um, requirement? Uh, and are you saying that realists would be far more hesitant about uh, accepting uh, th that kind of a logic? Um, no, it would depend entirely on the circumstances. So uh, certainly during the Cold War, NATO was an incredibly important and valuable institution as part of the overall strategy of containment the United States was pursuing. Right. So when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, I mean, realists uh, worry a lot about the 
the balance of power. In particular, uh, we worry about the emergence of rivals to the United States that might be as powerful as us, and also countries that dominate their own regions the same way the United States has a sort of dominant position in the Western Hemisphere. And when you think about it, what is it that allows the United States to run all over the world getting into trouble in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere? It's the fact that we're incredibly secure here in the Western Hemisphere. There are no other great powers. We have a friendly neighbor to the north, a mostly friendly neighbor to the south. Um, and, and as a result, we don't have to worry very much about defending Minnesota, um, which, which is a nice thing and then allows us to go off and get uh, involved elsewhere. Well, if some other country had a similar situation, you know, just as strong as the United States, but no serious enemies near its own territory, it would be free to project power around the world the same way we do. It might even try projecting power and influence into the Western Hemisphere. So realists think that you know something like NATO and Article 5 made perfect sense during the Cold War. I think we are more skeptical about whether the United States still needs to be protecting Europe now, you know, 25 plus years after the Soviet Union imploded, given that Europe is wealthy, uh, given that it's actually got substantial more military potential than Russia does, uh, and therefore should be capable of handling its own affairs and no longer needs Uncle Sam to protect it. And let's just explore that a bit more, because, you know, notwithstanding uh, the fact that, you know, the enemies aren't there in the same way, no more Soviet Union, you do have an aggressive Russia. I'm not suggesting that Russia in any way kind of compares with the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, You know, if you look at the size of its economy in particular, but not only. This is not a, a, a the, the same kind of threat that was posed in the uh, in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. So I, I take that point. And even China, although some will talk about China as, um, um, you know, uh, becoming, uh, contending with the United States in some manner, when you look at the Hard and soft elements uh, of of power uh, with China. This does not strike one as being up for that kind of rivalry that you're suggesting. So, in the face of that, what does the United States do? Um, well, a couple of things. I mean, with respect to Europe, I think the United States uh, should, after the end of the, at the end of the Cold War, should have announced that we were going to gradually devolve our security role in Europe. This would not be precipitous. It would take a decade or two, but we really wanted to turn European security over to the Europeans. And we knew we couldn't do that overnight. It would take them a while to come up with capabilities and procedures. Right. Uh, but uh, as uh, but but that was the direction we wanted to go in. You know. We always talk about how we want to stand up uh, the Afghan security forces so we can leave, or we want to get the Iraqi government to get its act together so we can leave, but yet we want to stay in Europe. Uh, you know, stable, democratic, uh, prosperous. Uh, somehow we don't trust the Europeans. Well, I think we could have uh, trusted the Europeans and we'd be better off now if we had had done that. Um, I take I agree entirely with what you said about uh, Russia as a declining power. You know, its economy is smaller than Italy's. Yep. Um, and and uh, Europe, in fact, not counting the United States, Europe spends four times more than Russia does on defense every year. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't spend it very well. Okay. Uh, it's remarkably inefficient. They don't get much combat capability, but they could. They have the wherewithal 
Uh, but it's going to require the United States, I think, to sort of stop being the uh, the protector of first resort. Um, with respect to China, I, I agree entirely. China is a potential peer competitor. If you uh, look at the potential capabilities they could put together, mm -hmm. and if everything goes well, they might be uh, at some point in the you know foreseeable future, but not next year. Right. Um, uh, so I think the United States should be focusing most of its attention on managing the relationship with China and making sure China doesn't you know, sort of dominate Asia the way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. In my view, that is as much a diplomatic task as it is a military task. It has a military element to it, mm -hmm. uh, but it mostly involves maintaining very positive relations with our current partners in Asia so that they want to be close to the United States. They obviously do not want to uh, be dominated by China. Um, and then it becomes the usual bargaining of sort of trying to get them to do more work so that we can do a, a little bit less and we've done that diplomatic game for a long time um i think you you saw some progress uh made under the obama administration with the pivot with building a better relationship uh, with india um and there's some signs that the trump administration is starting to get its act there but boy the first two years they did enormous damage uh, mm -hmm. partly as you said by rejecting tpp so precipitously right and also uh by i think treating some of our allies there with ill-disguised contempt. Yeah, and let me let me explore that a little bit more because I wanted you to take a look at the current some of the current foreign policy issues and let's start in the in in the Far East and in particular Korea. And, you know, kind of what's wrong with the current Trump policy in Korea and what would you think need to be done to improve that situation? Um well the the Biggest problem is that uh, we're we've been both I think, consistent and uh, indulgent of reality show fantasy uh, here. So the inconsistent part was on the one hand we know there's a problem with North Korea. Uh, one of the things I think Obama told Trump when they were yeah. sort of passing over the keys to the Oval Office was that North Korea's nuclear and missile programs was going to be the single biggest problem he would face as president. Uh, right at least in foreign policy. So we understood that there was a problem there. So why do you go out and in the first six months that you're president, you pick a fight with South Korea over trade? Mm -hmm. um, South Korea is obviously very critical to anything we uh, uh, do vis-a-vis -vis, uh, North Korea. So uh, that just struck me as sort of completely contradictory. Right. The second problem is that uh, uh, that what Trump ultimately uh, wanted was just a lot of attention. He ends up going off to Singapore, meets with Kim Jong Un. Yeah. And has this. Uh, there's nothing wrong, it seems to me, with that. Except it would been have been nice if there had been sufficient preparation for the summit so that they could actually get something accomplished there. Instead, what we got was, again, a reality show moment where the whole world is watching, they shake hands, they issue a communique that commits North Korea to doing absolutely nothing. And in, in a sense, Trump got his pocket picked by Kim Jong-un, mm -hmm. um, where basically uh, Kim got the recognition from a U.S. president, a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the president, something his father and his grandfather father never got acknowledgement of his nuclear uh, status in a variety of ways and he gave up absolutely nothing to give to get that 
Right. Um, that's for for someone who prides himself as a master deal maker. Uh, this was not Trump's finest moment, but I think he liked it because he got a lot of attention and a lot of applause. Of course, since then, it's become increasingly clear that North Korea has no intention of disarming. And what the United States is going to have to do in the future is acknowledge that fact that North Korea is a nuclear power. What we want to be doing is trying to stabilize relations with that country and stabilize the situation on the Korean Peninsula so that the risk that those weapons ever get used uh, is minimized. So uh, from from your standpoint, then, uh, I mean, let, let me let me put it in, in somebody else's terms. What does Mike Pompeo have to do in the next while? And what does the Trump administration have to say to the well, let's start with the allies, the South Koreans and the Japanese, with respect to the denuclearization uh, phenomenon, which doesn't, as you said, doesn't appear to be occurring. And beyond the denuclearization, of course, is the missile, uh, ballistic missile program and what consequences that has for South Korea and for Japan. Yeah, I, it seems to me the, the one piece of progress that, that you could point to is that North Korea has not continue to test ICBMs. Uh, they did run uh, enough tests to at least have a sort of theoretical capacity to reach the United States. But obviously, if they wanted to be really confident about that capability, they would want to run more tests. So one thing, one concrete measure we could uh, do is you know, continue to try to institutionalize the North Korean uh, cessation of these tests uh, if that was accompanied by also a cessation of no further uh, bomb tests. That's going to lower the temperature uh, substantially. That will, in fact, make uh, South Korea and Japan, uh, I think, happier uh, about this. Um, to the extent that uh, the South Korean effort to reach out to North Korea, which has, I think, been you know, moderately successful, uh, to the extent that that continues, we should be embracing that mm -hmm. and, and supporting it, again, as a a means of lowering uh, the temperature and and open to the possibility that now that North Korea has a reliable nuclear deterrent of its own, that that actually may uh, make them better behaved. That sounds a little bit paradoxical, but if you think some of their bellicosity has been based on a sort of, you know, angry insecurity, um, that now they really can be fairly confident that the thing they've always worried about, namely uh, U.S. imposed regime change. That's really off the table now. We're we're not going to overthrow the regime in North Korea because it's just too dangerous to try, and nobody in the region would do not South Korea, not Japan, not China, not Russia, not anybody. Um, so it seems to me that that this puts us back. Um, to the, the realm of sort of ordinary garden variety diplomacy, mm -hmm. where we're going to try to nudge North Korea into more normal relations with others, providing them with various carrots if they comply and taking the carrots away if they're recalcitrant. This is the, the movie we've been uh, watching with North Korea for, I'd say, 20 or 30 years at least. And I think it's the only movie that, you know, the, the theater is playing, if I can, <laughs> can push that metaphor a, a bit further. And the one thing to be open to is this is a different, a somewhat different North Korean leader. Um, yeah. And he may be open to not, you know, uh, anything that would undermine his rule there, nothing that's going to open it up and turn it into a multi-party democracy. 
I, I take your point on the no more uh, missile testing and and the consequence or the the upshot of that. But I guess the concern is that from a South Korean point of view, from a J- Japanese point of view, it's not intercontinental ballistic missiles that they worry about. They worry about the short-range and mid-range missiles, which are the ones that can still strike them, even if it can't strike the United States. Right. And and that, again, sort of, so what I would tell Mike Pompeo is that he needs to have some people working for him who are really uh, deeply knowledgeable about uh, North, I'm sorry, South Korea and Japan, mm-hmm. and v- very well attuned to how their security community thinks about these issues, good at talking to them about it. And then you invest a lot of time making sure that the United States doesn't do or say things without consulting its allies, that we try to make, you know, make sure that everyone's feeling like their concerns and interests are being listened to and uh, and followed. It's the sort of old uh, playbook of alliance management. So that means, just to pick another example, that the United States, you know, had pressured South Korea uh, to putting in uh, some anti-missile units uh, in South Korea, uh, missile defenses, and basing them in South Korea. And the South Koreans, uh, and, and Trump, when he came in, immediately said, well, that's a terrible deal. The South Koreans ought to be paying for it. <laughs> Um, yes, yes. And maybe that in the abstract, of course, would have been the right thing. But that was not the agreement that we reached with them. Remember, they were doing it because we wanted them to do it. Right. Um, and to go in and begin to complain about this sort of thing is exactly the wrong signal to send. Um, because, by the way, if you're worried over the long term about uh, the sort of strategic situation in Asia and the potential that China is going to become stronger and want to revise the status quo in some, you're going to need allies in places like South Korea and Japan and elsewhere. And the more erratic and self-absorbed and self-interested and even selfish the United States appears, uh, the harder that's going to be. Okay. Well, when we're speaking of allies, and it makes sense in the context of Trump policy, since he seems to have such difficulty to deal with uh, allies, I guess I wanted to raise with you. So what do his uh, uh, Trump's G7 partners do in the face of uh, uh, a fellow like this, uh, a president like this? I mean, we saw his bad behavior at Charlevoix and his rejection of a communique he'd uh, agreed to. Uh, We saw his pet, what I can only characterize as his petulant behavior at the uh, uh, peace, the 100th year peace observance at the end of the World War I, the armistice, uh, just uh, recently. Uh, so what do allies like Canada, like um, uh, the EU, or more particularly France or Germany, uh, what, what do they do uh, with a president like this? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure, um, <laughs> and I think you know, and they're not sure either. Right. Uh, I mean, what, one view all along has been the sort of you know, this is uh, uh, the Trump interregnum, uh, this too shall pass, and that's certainly the message that I think a number of allies had gotten from sort of people within the within the blob or within the U.S. government. So you know, they don't don't pay much attention to the tweets. Uh, you know, we've got we've got everything under control here. He's only going to be president for a while and then we can get back to kind of business as usual. Um, that may turn out to be true. Uh, depends a little bit on what happens, obviously, in 2020 obviously. as well. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, but that's certainly one possibility. The other possibility is that there is a sort of method to uh, Trump's boorish behavior. I mean, it obviously reflects the kind of person he is, and sort of naturally a bit of a bully, uh, and and not someone who can be appeased very easily. You know, lots of leaders have tried, including right. Macron, uh, for that matter, Justin Trudeau, I think went to great to try and sort of get on his good side and be uh, non-confrontational for a while, and it got him uh, nowhere as well. Right. I think what's going on here is that, that Trump basically thinks the United States is a powerful country, and its ability to get its way will be enhanced if it can play sort of divide and rule. Uh, he doesn't like the EU because the EU, when it acts together, is a cohesive economic not rival, not enemy, but a competitor. Mm-hmm. And he would rather the United States could deal with Belgium uh, individually and France individually and the UK individually and Germany individually because he thinks that gives the United States more leverage. Leverage, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And because there would be enormous resistance if he walked out and said this in public, what he's doing instead, I'm not sure this is the case, but what he may be doing instead is, you know, this sort of boorish behavior is a way of kind of breaking up the transatlantic relationship without appearing to or without doing it explicitly. Right. Um, how how others respond to it, uh, it seems to me, uh, we already have begun to see the evidence of it uh, with a, a series of world leaders from Angela Merkel to Macron to others to say, well, all right, then we're going to have to now chart our own course. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to stop taking the United States for granted. Now, that may sound like what I was saying about 10 or 15 minutes ago about how the United States really uh, should be letting Europe uh, you know, defend itself. Right, um, right. But there's two different ways to do that, right? If you want to div- – first of all, we ought to remain closely tied economically because we have uh, lots of mutual benefits that we gain from that. Uh, they do and we do as well. Sure. Um, but – even if you wanted to devolve or reduce the American security commitment in Europe, first of all, you want to do that in as harmonious a fashion as possible. This is not done in a fit of anger. You don't want people going away being ticked off at the United States. But second, it's very much in America's interest if Europe remains sort of tranquil and harmonious, if it gets over the various problems it's having right now. The last thing we want is a Europe that's deeply divided, where, you know, xenophobia is coming back where extremist movements especially on the right are are gaining power because that's a europe we have to keep worrying about right Um, in a sense uh, a europe that's kind of boring politically is what we want (laughs) uh, much more than a europe that's exciting with lots of crazy stuff going on there because that's the kind of situation that uh, you know ultimately might require the united states to step in at some point way down the road uh, let me take your your view and just stretch it a bit. I mean, clearly you suggested that you know he's using this boorish behavior, at least with his allies, uh, to um, in effect uh, you know kind of gain some leverage. But then I guess the follow on question to that is, well, then why does he not use the boorish behavior when it comes to something like Putin and Russia? So when you think about it, uh, given the current situation we have with Russia, it would be in uh, Europe's interest 
if uh, Russia got out of Ukraine and stopped interfering in European politics and stopped assassinating former spies <laughs> trying to, and stop uh, trying to intimidate the Baltic states in various ways. That would be very good for Europe. It would be good for Russia to have the sanctions lifted right. and for Russia not to have to worry any longer about further NATO expansion. So we declare that's it. We're not going any further uh, forget it. That would be good for Russia. And it would be good for the United States if we could pull Moscow uh, some distance away from Beijing and sort of, if not breaking up that partnership, at least relaxing it, or weakening it in, in various ways. So there's the all the ingredients of a win-win-win here. And I think Trump kind of understood that uh, and, and said some things along those lines back in 2016. The problem, of course, is that his own relationship with Russia and his own conduct when he's around Putin um, has made it virtually impossible for him to pursue that at all. He's mm -hmm. just too suspect. Right? We're, we're, we have too many questions about his possible motives uh, for doing this as well. So politically, uh, something that would make enormous strategic sense for us, for our European allies, and for that matter, for Russia, is uh, almost a path we can't go down because we have a president who's so deeply compromised when it comes to that particular country. Yeah, okay. If, I mean, it's always interesting perspective to to view his relationship with Putin directly and then, you know, more more broadly with with Russia, but um, it's also true, but one other, other thing, Alan, that it's also true that, you know, Trump seems to have a, a similar fondness for, you know, strong leaders and, for that matter, authoritarian leaders. Um, you know, he, he uh, until he got into quarrels, he sort of had respect for someone like Erdogan in Turkey. Obviously, his relationship with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed right. bin Salman, yeah. uh, suggests this. And I think this is an artifact of, of kind of his business career that, you know, when you want to do a deal, you go to the guy at the top. You go to the person in charge. You don't have to worry about the underlings. Uh, and, you know, applied to international politics, I don't want to have to deal with domestic politics. I don't have to worry about coalitions. I don't want to have to get things. Through. I just want to find the person at the top who can give me what I want and tell them. Um, and so I think he actually is sort of comfortable with these people more than he is with um, people who are uh, sensitive to their own domestic politics, and yeah. in particular, uh, people who have a different view of both what the United States should be doing, but also what you know, sort of, uh, world politics should be like these days. All right. Well, it, it does pose two very contrasting um, tactical views of the way in which he operates, and that may well be true. I guess the question, uh, the big question before we finish today is, uh, where do you think, I mean, can the liberal order uh, survive Trump? If not, what are we looking at, let's say, whether he leaves in 2020 or he leaves in, you know, 2024, although clearly there can be consequences to that. But w w where do we go with the relationships, uh, the liberal order relationships, but more broadly, uh, global, global cooperation, global challenges that we face? Yeah, um, it's a great question. It's sort of the one we're all... Uh 
all pondering uh, almost uh, almost daily. Right. And to the extent that there ever was a liberal order, and this has been debated by some scholars in, in recent months, um, you know, I think elements of it could easily uh, survive Trump. I mean, what we think of as the liberal world order uh, was never entirely liberal, uh, and it certainly was never global, right. because there were big parts of the world that were completely outside of it or largely outside of it. And for that matter, it was never all that orderly, uh, although it had some elements uh, of order in it. Um, and, you know, that's clearly fraying. I guess the point I would make is that, that Trump is both a cause of some of this, he's probably exacerbated it, but he's also a symptom. Right. He didn't uh, cause the emergence of Viktor Orban in Hungary, right. which precedes him. Uh, he did not uh, cause the authoritarian impulses of uh, Erdogan in Turkey. And that you see the fraying of certain elements of this liberal order, uh, this uh, is long, uh, long before Trump shows up. Now, his actions since then, I think, have made... Uh, those things worse, have introduced new strains in a variety of ways. But I think the bigger question is whether or not the underlying dynamics, uh, changes in the way ec economies work, changes in employment, um, the failures of liberal hegemony over the last 25 years, which have tarnished sort of the American image in a, a variety of ways. Uh, the real question is whether or not the dynamics that we see with a Brexit vote or we see with the rise of you know, far right parties in Europe, what's going to happen to those forces after Trump is gone? Because those forces weren't caused by him and they're still going to be around once he's left the stage. Yeah, and that's fair. And, and you know, it reminds me of uh, uh, the commentary by uh, our colleague Bruce Gentleson at uh, Duke when he wrote this piece called The Liberal Order Isn't Coming Back, What's Next? I mean, he suggested, and others have suggested as well, that the problems uh, really began before Trump and, and that Trump, you know, is just a symptom of of them. And, you know, he pointed to the pillars at the time of what he saw as the liberal order, namely an open international economy, rules and institutions, and multilateral cooperation, at least at some on some issues, democracy as the optimal domestic political system. And then, as we've talked about it already, American power underwriting the system. So I take it you're suggesting that some of those elements may remain, but others well may not. Right. And I think I, uh, I'll be surprised if we don't end up with a mostly open international economy, if not quite as uh, unrestrained globalization as we've seen. I mean, I think there's a, a consensus even among big supporters of, of free trade or open trade uh, that we maybe got a little bit uh, too enthusiastic and didn't <laughs> understand some of the consequences, uh, both here but also in, uh, in other places as well. There will always be a set of rules and institutions. Uh, for multilateral cooperation of various kinds. Um, you know, my favorite example in class is always to talk about the agreements that govern international aviation. Yes. Right. You need to have some rules to be able to fly to different countries and not have planes bump into each other. Um, and those are going to remain intact. And, of course, it's a much more extensive system than that. I do think the consensus, the global consensus that democracy is the optimal system. That's really under siege right now. Mm -hmm. Um uh, it never was universal, um, but uh, you know. I guess when I think prescriptively, I think if you want to sort of sell that now, uh, 
to the world, uh, we ought to be devoting much more attention to making uh, democracy and democratic orders uh, look attractive to others as opposed to looking uh, dysfunctional, bitter, partisan, divided, and not very good at solving the problems that are right in front of their noses. Uh, you know, when, when Obama talked about uh, nation building, you know, it was time for nation building at home, I think he was right. Mm -hmm. And paradoxically, we might do a better job of spreading liberal values abroad if we made them uh, more evident, more obvious, and more effective here at home. So if I can characterize, and you correct me, uh, you see a continuation of some form of liberal order, but it's, it's going to be different. It's going to. It's definitely not going to be the. It's. It's not going to be uh, your parents or ours. Uh, our liberal order. Right. Um, it, it's. I think it's not going to be the kind of. And certainly the sense that it was the the sort of inevitable destination of mankind, mm -hmm. which is the way people thought about it. You know, back in the days when Frank Fukuyama was writing about the end, end of, of history. history. Yeah. Right. And Tom Friedman was writing about you know globalization and uh, what he called you know dose capital or Das Capital 6.0 or something like that. <laughs> uh, the idea that the Americans had kind of worked out the perfect order and everyone was going to have to be like them or they would fall by the wayside. I think it's now increasingly clear that that's not the case, which means we're going to end up with a world that that in some respects is um, you know, safe for a certain amount of, uh, if not ideological diversity, uh, political socioeconomic diversity different countries are going to have different paths they may all be participating in a more or less unified world economy but the ways in which they participate um, and of course the ways in which they organize their own societies at home are not going to be identical well that's fair yeah that's fair but let, let me just end uh, with this last question i mean what appears you know take away some of the rhetoric uh, related to our friend uh, President Trump, but his uh, concerns about China and others' concerns about China is that they're not playing by, uh, for lack of a better term, fair rules. That, you know, the agreements we signed up to, they signed up to with respect to the WTO, particularly around, you know, um, growing privatization and marketization and competition on that level with China and the questions around intellectual property and intellectual property protections, that those kinds of things and the structure of the Chinese economy are an issue. Right. And, and I think one of the things people need to be aware of is that, that first of all, that indictment is basically correct, that the Chinese didn't uh, abide by their rules and that they probably were led into the WTO prematurely, mm -hmm. that there were some domestic reforms that needed to take place before that happened. But for uh, ideological reasons, if you will, the belief that bringing them in would, in fact, you know, socialize them right. into a bunch of uh, Western norms. Um, again, I think that was over-optimistic uh, on our part. But there's a real consensus uh, there. And secondly, that's now uh, allied with the national security consensus, right? Mm -hmm. The Pentagon worrying about some of China's uh, military developments, their assertiveness in the South China Sea as well. So you're getting a, a consensus in Washington that runs from the Pentagon to the Treasury that it's time to sort of get uh, get tough with China. The problem, that, of course, is that Trump has gone about this in the least effective way possible. <laughs> 
Right. If you really wanted to to get China to behave or revise its uh, uh, handling, and for that matter, if you wanted to fix the World Trade Organization in some ways that are probably overdue, the thing to do would be to line up the EU, line up Britain, yeah. line up right. Canada, line up Japan, line all the other major industrial powers together and say, go to China en masse and say, all right, uh, we, we love it that you're getting rich. We think that's terrific. We right. have no problem with your development, but you're going to have to play by the same rules as the rest of us. Right. Instead, what Trump has done is picked a fight with all of those countries, yes. making it much more difficult to then have a united front against China. And we'll probably get somewhere with China, but it would have been much more effective to do it in a properly strategic way. Well, I really appreciate, Stephen, you're taking the time out to talk to us about uh, the questions around the American foreign policy and Trump and the liberal order and everything else. Thank you very much for joining us today. Alan, it was my pleasure.